Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 152. In this episode, we're talking about biblical critical theory with Dr. Christopher Watkin. Dr. Christopher Watkin is Senior Lecturer in French Studies at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, and the author of the book that we're excited to talk about in this episode, Biblical Critical Theory, How the Bible's Unfolding Story Makes Sense of Modern Life and Culture, published by Zondervan. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Amber Bowen, Stephanie Kate Judd, Reverend Daniel Parham, Reverend Dr. Chris Porter, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So just a handful of weeks ago when we were in Denver, Chris Watkins' book had just come out, but it was completely sold out so fast. uh, There were no copies available anytime I went to the Zondervan booth to try and check it out. But I loved hearing so much uh, from him today in this conversation about his book. I especially enjoyed the story focus um, as somebody who also thinks about the importance of stories for engaging culture and specifically uh, pop culture. I was reminded so much as Dr. Watkin was talking with us about N.T. Wright's uh, five-act drama for thinking about the Christian life or Kevin Van Hooser's notion of uh, the drama of scripture and all of this. So just really enjoyed it. What were all of your takeaways from our conversation with Dr. Watkin? I really enjoyed Chris's deep engagement with uh, questions of culture uh, and especially questions of critical theory. Um, he has done an excellent job at uh, processing and engaging those things, and especially outside of the context in which we normally find ourselves uh, reading critiques of culture from standing outside of that and especially standing within a broad academic uh, framework. Uh, He brings a a really valuable critique and a valuable engagement there. I really love the way that Chris models Augustine in taking seriously the thought leaders, the philosophical figures, and the ideas, concepts, and values, and desires that our age bears, and the way that he thinks about theory as ways that manifest the world, that make the world clear to us, and certain parts of the world clear to us. And so why wouldn't the Bible be one such thing that makes the world visible to us and viable and valuable, as he says. Yeah, I agree with that, Amber. And I think what I really loved his explanation of the way that, yes, the Bible does offer a narrative of of reality, but that isn't a meta-narrative in the sense that it's not detached from empirical reality, but the incarnation says that God is particular and in a sense, that means that it's not detached, um, but that it it gives us tools to engage with the particular realities of where we find ourselves um, in a way that was just so helpful and actually beautiful. I found it a really beautiful explanation of what are the tools that we can use to engage with culture in a way that is realistic and um, takes a, takes stock of this grand narrative that, that God has invited us into. I think also I, I appreciated the elements of which he talked about the asymmetry of good and evil and I think how that frames uh, how we look into the lens of scripture um, and also are able to give witness to scripture in a world that can be very binary at times in relationship to good and evil. Uh, and so we, even as Christian thinkers, 
go to the text with an understanding that it is complex uh, to look at the text to and to not live in a binary, um, but see see the asymmetry of good and evil clashing with one another uh, in relationship to the whole redemptive story um, that plays uh, into how we see society, how we see the world, and how we can jump from being hopeful, as he mentioned, um, out of the cynicism that. Uh, every human being can be plagued by, uh, but the audacity of hope that 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 the Christian worldview can provide uh, in this complicated text known known as Scripture, um, he he enlightens it in a way uh, that allows us to examine our own selves, right, uh, and how we bring our humanity into uh, a complicated text. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Christopher Watkins. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Watkin. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you, Jim. So we're really excited to talk about your new book, Biblical Critical Theory. Uh, Of course, ever since the murder of George Floyd, critical theory and critical race theory in particular have been part of the zeitgeist. It's been part of dinner table conversations. It's been part of news uh, reports about the uh, evils of what the liberals are are trying to do to at least uh, this country in the United States. Uh, And then comes along your book. And I'm curious, as we begin this conversation, can you tell us why? Why you why you decided to uh, produce this book and how you see it fitting within the sort of turmoil of the CRT conversations, at least uh, at least in the states? Lovely, a nice nice easy question to start off today. The the story of the book goes back a long way further than George Floyd and, and recent events. So it's it's a book that I've been trying to write, I guess, for about twenty years, and it started off as a feeling of frustration, really, when I was an undergraduate in a big secular university studying um, in an arts faculty and, you know, having to wrangle every week with with Derrida, Foucault, Deleuze, feminist thought, queer theory, and on and on, and also going to a a really wonderful Bible teaching church that was encouraging me to take the Bible seriously and read it slowly and apply it to the whole of life, and wanting a space either a physical space or a mental space, where those two worlds could come together and talk to each other and compare the approaches that they had to the the great questions that were facing society. And that there wasn't really a space that did that adequately at the time. And so I, I was searching around for how to get a conversation going between these two different worlds in which I was moving. And the two pennies dropped, I guess, to, to get me to the point where I could see how that might work. The, the first one was the, the first Bible overview that I did uh, on a Christian summer camp I went on, which was just paradigm shifting, just very viscerally exciting. I remember the, the feeling of, of realizing that the Bible wasn't what I previously thought it was, which was an incredibly important collection of stories with, with spiritual meanings, but it was actually one story, complex, multi-layered story, but one story from beginning to end, inside which Christians were invited to live and that made sense of of the whole of reality. And the second penny that dropped was reading Augustine's City of God. Um, It was one rainy holiday that we had in the beautiful Yorkshire uh, seaside town of Bridlington, 
uh, with my parents and I took advantage of the rain by <laughs> trying to plow through the city of God. Um, full disclosure, I didn't understand most of it, but the bits that I did understand, I just saw the bits of the jigsaw coming together, really. Augustine was doing what I knew that I, I wanted to do, but didn't know how. He was taking a Bible overview framework. So in the second half of the city of God, he goes from Genesis to Revelation. And he was using it as a series of incredibly sharp lenses through which to read late Roman culture and to critique it in incredibly perceptive ways, not simply to, to do a demolition job on it, although he, he does um, show its, its tensions and its inadequacies and its dangers. Um, but in, in order just to see it even better than that culture sees itself. And so from that point on, really, that was the pattern that I wanted to try um, in, in a very imperfect way to follow. And that's, that's what I've tried to do in this book. So Genesis to Revelation as a series of lenses to, to read culture. Chris, in your book, you talk about how these lenses that we apply to our culture aren't just to demolish or affirm. Those aren't the only two options, but there's this third way. And you unpack that a bit. Could you share that with us now? I'd love to. It, it's one of the most exciting things that I discovered when I was writing the book. So thank you, Steph, for the opportunity to, <laughs> to talk about that. I, I wonder whether, and you know, it, every listener will have to try and work this out for him or herself, whether they agree, that, that there's a, a besetting danger of Christian cultural critique today, which is to gravitate to one or the other of, of those poles that you've just mentioned. We've either got to find a way of denouncing culture because we know before we encounter anything that it's got to be wrong, and that's the only thing to say about it. Or we've got to find a way of affirming culture because we want to be relevant and we want to stand alongside people and show them you know, how the gospel fulfills the desires they already have and that sort of thing. Um, and I think both of those really sell the Bible so sharp because the, the Bible's own approach to culture is so much more complex and, and nuanced than that. And the, the passage where this really crystallized for me was 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul is engaging with the Greek desire for wisdom and the Jewish longing for miraculous signs, which later in that passage is clear he's, he's, what they're looking for in those signs is power. And he takes these two cultural values of power and wisdom, and he does something brilliant with them that goes so far beyond either just denouncing them or just saying that, you know, they're halfway towards being Christian already. That, that the first thing he does is that he utterly opposes them to the cross, you know, so the Greeks look for wisdom, the cross is foolishness. And at this point, all the people who say, you know, we should say that the Bible is, is like oil and water to culture. It's so different. It's sort of cheering in their seats and saying, yeah, Paul's our guy. He's doing our thing. He's saying the Bible and culture are so different to each other. But then a few verses later, he does something completely unexpected to, to that crowd of people. And he says that the foolishness of God is actually wiser than human wisdom. So he's, he's comparing them on a scale. He's saying you, you can compare these two things with each other. And if you do so, you'll find that there's much more wisdom in the cross 
than there is in what the Greeks are looking for. So it's at that point, as if he's saying to the Greeks, are you really serious about searching for wisdom as you claim to be? Because if you are, I challenge you, says Paul, to look for it in the place you would least expect to find it, which is the foolishness of a criminal dying an agonizing death on a cross. And if, as Paul would say, if you're willing to get over yourselves and to look for it there, you will find a wisdom of a depth and sophistication and fullness that you haven't even dreamt of. And at that point, he's, he's hitting that branch of cultural critique, he's, he's resonating with that branch of cultural critique that wants to get alongside the world and say, we, we, we want to show you how what you're already searching for is fulfilled in Christ. And so you've got your fulfillment people in contemporary culture, and you've got your, if you like, your antithesis people who say the Bible and culture are completely different. And what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 1 is he's showing how both of those positions have, have caught on to something significant. You know, the cross is foolishness. It's not just simply more Greek wisdom, but also the cross, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And he's giving us a pattern for how we can both go full out on antithesis and unload both barrels on fulfillment. And there'd be no tension between the two of them. He's giving us a more sophisticated pattern for cultural critique. Chris, one of the things that I was so excited about um, seeing your book and um, also your work even prior to this is a lot of times in Christian conversations about critical theory or just different types of theory, whether it be feminist or Marxist or psychoanalytical, it's generally undertaken in very hypercritical terms as if there's something at stake in Christianity that we have to prove that this theory is absolutely wrong. Um, and, or there might be a, an approach that says, no, we need to show that this theory is perfectly um, analogous with Christianity, or it fits comfortably within Christianity, or it has absolutely nothing to do with it. So kind of like what Steph was saying, it was sort of uh, yay saying or nay saying approach. Um, but you have done a remarkable job, even in your work prior to this, of engaging philosophical figures whose very names tend to raise the hackles of Christians like Jacques Derrida. <laughs> um, and you take an approach of deep listening to them before kind of earning the right to, to then critique, which I find to be a, a, an impulse that's a little bit different from what you see. And I'm wondering if you can speak to that and, and why you take that approach in your work. Thank you so much, Amber. I, I guess coming at it from a, Biblical point of view, I suppose you'd say that it's sort of the golden rule um, applied to reading, isn't it? Read other people as you would want them to read you. You wouldn't want people to to just, you know, not think about what you were saying, but to find ways of disagreeing with you. You know, that 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 would be inadequate and really frustrating if, if people did that with you. Um, and so, and I suppose theologically, the the foundation for doing it that way is the idea and the, the reality that everyone who is writing and a fortiori every human person is is made in the image of God um and the the world in which we live was originally a good world made by God 
Um, but every human person, including me and everyone on this podcast, is also sinful. Um, and we get things wrong. And therefore, there's, well, there's both a, a level playing field between Christians and other people, because no one escapes sort of being, having our own prejudices um, influence the way that, that we read people. But I think it also gives Christians in particular an openness to reading whoever it is. Not, not an openness that means you have to accept what everybody says about everything, but an openness to, to opening a book by someone like David and thinking, here is someone made in the image of God um, who will be reflecting in, in however distorted a way uh, that the reality of the world as God has made it in his or her writing, inevitably, because um, in the same way that only God is good, as Jesus says, um, only the devil is utterly evil. And, and so in every book, um, there's going to be some um, shadow, some remnant, uh, some echo of, of God's goodness. Uh, and as Christians, we can find that, but, but also a discerning openness, because you know that, that in any book, whether it's written by a Christian or someone who's not a Christian, um, their own um, limited understanding, but also their own prejudices and their own sinfulness is going to be getting in the way. And so I think that the Christian cultural critic is particularly well placed to encounter writers who disagree with him or her and to have a discerning openness to what they say. And just to sort of round off that thought, I, I think it's hard to do that now, this is going to sound strange and provocative, but when I first say it, it's hard to do that if you're not a Christian. And, and what I mean by that is that if you have your if you find your measure of what's good and evil in this world, as you're bound to do, if you think that this world is all there is and you want a measure of good and evil to be able to say that some things are wrong, um, you know, you, you find it in something like, I don't know, the the struggle between the, the the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, or you find it in free markets and regulation, or, or rationality and superstition, anything like that. Those things become de facto off limit to your cultural critique. You can't critique those things themselves, because if you do, you're going to lose your measure of good and evil, and then you, you're going to lose your ability to, to critique incisively and to, to denounce what you want to denounce and to commend what you want to commend. Um, but the, the Christian doesn't find her measure of what's good and evil in this world because only God is good and he's not part of creation. And so that the Christian can have an openness to, to everything, not, not an acceptance of everything again, but a, a discerning, critical willingness to engage with everything, you know, whether that's Derrida or, or, or whoever it is, whatever cultural artifact or movement it is, knowing that there's going to be some echo somewhere in there of God's creation goodness and knowing that there's going to be some distortion uh, due to sin in there. And I think Christians can sometimes forget what an unusually um, rich situation that is to be in and what, what a powerful um, and humbling starting point for cultural critique that, that gives a Christian person. Yeah. 
I very much appreciate you mentioned in your book at some point about how Augustine does show the internal contradictions in the Hellenistic culture, but he takes all of their artifacts and thinkers and values, he takes them very seriously. Uh, you know, he doesn't dismiss them easily. He he earnestly dialogues with them. And I think that's something you model very well in this book, that there, a lot of the thinkers that you're engaging are not people that you can just pick up their book, read a few lines, and then move forward. Um, they're people who take a lot of patient listening to really understand their thought and what they're saying and the problems that they're identifying and taking taking them seriously, even in the way you read them. Um, but what I'm wondering now is, I, I love the way that you describe theory or the way that you explain what theory is. Um, and usually when we think about theory, especially more contemporary theories, usually I think there's a connotation with agenda, um, there, a certain kind of agenda, whether it's a Marxist agenda or a feminist agenda or a psychoanalytical agenda. Um, but you describe theory in, in a way that I find to be um, I would call it hermeneutical, but I'm wondering if if you can explain how how you think about theory and their purpose. Yeah, so in the book, I take try to understand theory in in a generic sense, in a broad sense. Um, and I, I realize as I begin this answer that I, I didn't answer the second half of John's question from earlier, which was about recent movements in uh, in society and critical race theory and so forth. So let me try and weave a response to, to these two questions together. Um, so to, to begin with John's and then, then to try and bounce over to, to your question, Amber, um, I think there's a danger if Christians only think about and perhaps fixate upon contemporary, particular contemporary manifestations of, of theoretical approaches, such as, for example, critical race theory, that, that there's a danger of missing the wood for the trees and seeing how these particular movements exist within an ecosystem and rely on assumptions and moves that have been made previously, without which they're, it, it's really hard to get a handle on why they're doing what they're doing. Um, and I think Christians sometimes can envisage themselves almost as a, a SWAT team that sort of parachutes into culture and tries to deal with a particular threat and then gets airlifted out afterwards. You know, we need to we need to think about critical race theory or whatever it is, um, which, which I, I think that that approach really struggles to, to do anything significant, I think, because it's missing this broader context. And a better paradigm might be uh, to 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 think of oneself as a part of a police force in, in the sense of you you range over the whole of the cultural landscape uh, and you try and and understand what's what's going on in all of it rather than just parachuting into a into one area. So if we are to take and this is now your question, Amber, if we are to take this broader view of critical theory, as it's called, then what what should we understand it to be? And in the book, I offer a threefold way of getting a handle on what all these different critical theories are doing. And actually, what one thing that the Bible is doing as well. Um, and it's that critical theories make certain things in the world and in ourselves viable, visible, and valuable. So to, to make something viable is to make it possible to think it or possible to live in a certain way. Um, 
And so, um, for example, the, the Bible makes believing God's promises viable. Um, you know, for a contemporary person, the, the idea of believing the promises of the God of the Bible just often sounds ridiculous. How on earth could that would that work in a person's life? But the more you read the Bible, the more you say, oh, OK, I can understand how that might be something that you could authentically do. I can see more of this God's character and how, how God is trustworthy and so forth. So, so it makes certain things viable. And a, a critical approach also makes certain things visible. And this is, I think, the great power uh, that people find in a lot of these critical approaches. They, they show you things that you missed before. So if you think of a lot of feminist approaches, for example, that they're, they're, they're seeking to make visible the oppression of women in society in lots of different ways that people simply weren't aware of previously. It's not that everybody knew that women were being oppressed in all these different ways and decided to ignore it, although sometimes it is. But often it's that these things just passed under the radar. People weren't aware, but, but these, these theoretical approaches, if you like, put, put a die in the system. Um, they, they show these things up, they, they make them visible. And, and the Bible also makes certain things in the world visible. So, for example, the glory of God in creation. You might never, if you hadn't read the Bible, have looked at a beautiful sunset and thought to yourself before, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God. This is showing me how wonderful God is. But the, the Bible says, look at that, notice that, make that link. You know, make the glory of God in creation visible to you. Or you might think of the widows and orphans in society. You know, the Bible is constantly drawing our attention. Uh, to those most vulnerable uh, in communities. Uh, and again, just making that visible. So, so the Bible is performing that same move. And thirdly, making certain things valuable. These theoretical approaches uh, catechize their adherents into what to condemn in the world and, and what to commend. Um, and they're, they're very powerful and very effective in doing that. And the, and the Bible also does that, doesn't it? You know, you might not have, as, as I didn't until I became a Christian, ever thought there's great value in serving other people, you know, but you, you can't get too far in the Bible, certainly in, in the New Testament, before it becomes patently apparent to you that one of Jesus's highest priorities for his disciples is that they seek to serve rather than to, to become the greatest. Um, and so it's saying this is something you should value. And so among all all the things that the Bible is doing, and, and you know, it is making us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It, it's, it's God breathed and so forth. Absolutely all of those things. But it is also performing these same theoretical moves. It's making certain ways of being in the world viable. It's making certain things visible, both in our own hearts and in, in the world around us. And it's making certain things valuable to us. Uh, and it's on that basis, I think, that you can begin to get a conversation going. OK, so what are these different theoretical approaches making viable, visible and valuable? What's the Bible making viable, visible and valuable? Well, then let's look at those two sets of um, uh, ideas and let's, you know, let's get a conversation going between. them. Thanks so much, Chris. One of the things that it strikes me in this conversation is that uh, the, the high theories are often uh, externally socially located. So they are uh, attempting to provide a critique from outside of a system on the system that they are looking into. Um, 
And at the same time, I suspect many people who read your book will make the comparison with uh, with Niebuhr's uh, Christ and culture um, as the engagement. And one of the things there is that uh, the Christ and culture paradigm often works, um, it, it essentially works within a hegemonic structure. It presumes some form of um, of cultural interaction uh, in that sense. Interesting in what in how you see what you're doing in terms of the social locatedness of the of critical biblical critical theory. Um, where where is where do Christians find themselves in that um, in that mix? Are we seeing ourselves outside of the the culture that we're critiquing or, or providing critique from the outside, or are we embedded within it uh, such that we end up with a you know, Christ against or Christ over culture sort of paradigm uh, as a critique from within. Wow. Thank you. We could go for hours on that. Well, that's the idea. <laughs> you, you have just put your finger on so many important points in that question. Let me just start rambling on and then you guys can feel free to interrupt me if I, if I go on for too long in response to this cornucopia of, of a question. Um, first of all, you do need a standpoint outside of some sort, of some quality, in order to critique culture. Because if the way that things are is simply what there is, and you can't get to normativity without something to compare the status quo with. Uh, otherwise, all you've got is what there is, and that's simply what there is. So why would you possibly, how could you possibly critique it? There, there's no sense of that. So every critical position needs a, a standpoint outside the status quo in order to be able to say the status quo is, is not right. There's something deficient about it, which they all do. No, no critical theory that, that I've studied is, is looking at contemporary society and saying, well, this, this is just perfect. Let's not change anything. Um, and in order to, to get away from that, you need to, to have somewhere, some standard that you're holding it to that's not the status quo. Um, now, for Christians, this comes from the, the storied nature of reality, you know, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Um, and we know that we're living in the part of the story before the consummation, where the, the kingdom of God is, is breaking into reality uh, through the church, through, through the working of the spirit of God. Um, but redemption is not final uh, and complete. The creation is still groaning, as, as Paul says in, in Romans 8. Uh, and so we, we look at the status quo from the standpoint of, of redemption, uh, from what God will make this world one day. Um, and that gives the Christian a, a position from which to say, with an authority that goes beyond one's personal feelings, this is not right. It's not just I don't like it, but there is a sense that transcends me in which this is not right. Um, it's harder to get to that point if you don't have a storied view of reality where, where there are these qualitative ruptures between creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. So if, if you think that the way things are hasn't fundamentally and will never fundamentally change, Things just keep developing and, and, and evolving gradually over time. It, it's harder to find an authoritative point outside the status quo from which to say 
in a way that goes beyond personal feeling. I don't like it. This is wrong. There's something in society that is unjust and it ought to be changed rather than I would prefer it. It would make me happy if it were changed. So, so that's the first thing. You do need a point outside the status quo. However, I think it, it's easy, too easy to go from that to say, well, culture is something that for Christians sits obediently in the corner, minding its own business. And so you go over it to it, tap it on the shoulder and say, can we have a conversation, please? And it's this idea that, that, that Christianity and culture are two very separate things. And the culture um, never sort of invades or, or infects or inflects the way in which we do Christianity. And I, I don't think that's a biblical way of looking at things. It's a very modern way of looking at things, in fact. Um, and in the book, I, I try to offer a few categories to, to get our heads around this. So that modernity has a, a desire for, to be acultural. And, and this is what's lurking in the modern idea of objectivity, um, which if you want to circle back, we can talk about more, but this answer is already overly long. So I'm just going to leave objectivity there. Um, it's the idea that the aspiration for all knowledge should be to be cultureless. Um, and you see it in, in modern thinkers. I think it, in, in Descartes, it begins to come out and in, and in others. Um, as if culture was a husk that we can thresh away from a pure seed of knowledge that is itself a cultural. The culture always gets in the way. And there's also another paradigm, which is not a biblical one, uh, which is that knowledge is monocultural. I think we see some of this in, in contemporary society um, and in, in some other religious traditions as well, that there is, there is one culture that is um, better than all the others at embodying knowledge. And what we need to do is we need to approximate to this single culture, all of us, and as we do that, we will um, uh, approximate to the truth. Now, so I've said that the Bible doesn't do the, those two things. <laughs> What on earth then does the Bible do? Um, I, I think that culture, that knowledge in the Bible is what you might call transcultural, uh, in that it finds itself embodied in any number of different cultures in, in a way that doesn't privilege one of those above the others, but that finds its home in everyone. So if you think about the Bible as a document, this is really striking. Your most religious texts are, are written at one cultural moment, I reflect one cultural moment. They're written broadly in, in one genre, but you, you can't say any of that of the Bible. Uh, it's, it's written about and to communities variously who are nomadic, um, self-governing, under occupation, um, uh, diasporic, and it's written in multiple languages. And my goodness, the Bible is written in so many different genres. And there's no sense in which one of those is better than all the others for embodying God's truth. So the, the gospel itself, God's message is unchanging. There's no sense that, that God is revising what he's saying as you go through the Bible. But he has no problem in communicating it in Hebrew. 
no problem communicating it in Koine Greek, uh, no problem communicating to very different cultures. And, and I think what that teaches us is that, that the gospel is wonderfully supple and agile and can find expression and can find its home in any different culture. It, it, it moves between cultures with ease. That, that's what I mean by transcultural. And I think we find that today as well. If you look at the, the center of Christianity in, in the world over the centuries, it, it's, it's incredibly diverse. It starts off as a, a Middle Eastern religion. Um, it sort of moves over uh, the center of gravity for a period perhaps is, is in uh, Europe. You know, Augustine is North African. Um, the, the, the United States, you know, has, has found a, a home for Christianity. And today, increasingly, uh, Christianity, the center of gravity is, is shifting uh, to um, sort of Far Eastern countries and to African countries. And there's no sense in which any of those moments was, if you like, peak Christianity, that any of those was better than all the others as a cultural embodiment of Christianity. It's, it's Middle Eastern just as much as it's African, just as much as it's European, just as much as it's North American. Um, and there's something incredibly precious and incredibly powerful, I think, about the way in which the gospel is transcultural in that way. And really quite unusual. If you look at other traditions, whether they be secular traditions or religious traditions, uh, you'll tend to find more of a geographical and cultural anchoring. Uh, that, but I, I think Christianity is quite unusually geographically and culturally eclectic. And, and I, just, I think that's so delicious. That is just so wonderful. Um, and if, if people are wanting a, a Bible verse for this, uh, Revelation 7, I think just um, fantastic about this. Every tongue, tribe, and nation in heaven praising God. Um, and, and therefore, what, what you find in that passage is that in, on the new earth, tongues, tribes, and nations aren't got rid of. It's not as if they were some sort of inconvenient way station towards the monoculture of heaven. You know, you, you rock up in, um, uh, on the new earth and you find there are still discernible tongues, tribes, and nations there. So the, there's something inherently good about that diversity because, you know, there it is on the new earth. Um, and yet there's there's a unity in that, in those multifarious cultural expressions where everybody is praising the lamb on the throne. And there's no sense in which there's, they're being oppressed culturally in order to do so. There's no sense in which, you know, oh, we're all Europeans now in Revelation 7. Absolutely not. There's, there's no tongue, tribe or nation that's privileged above the others. And yet there's no sense of attention between them either. And, and this, I think, it you know, speaks so richly and profoundly into some of the huge questions we're dealing with in society today. You know, how to live side by side with people who profoundly disagree with you on, on matters of first importance and still to do this thing called society um, adequately. Um, yeah, it's not it's not giving a one sentence answer to all of that, but it's it's speaking into those those profound found cultural debates with, I think, a fresh voice, a voice that's not often heard in the public square. I was wondering if you could give us a bit of a steer as to how to grapple with um, 
the particular, you know, the storied nature of the scriptures in which God works for a particular people group. And it's, you know, you talked about how it's transcultural, not monocultural, but vast swathes of the scriptures are embedded in a people, a particular people group, that particularity and storied nature of that. And a people who in certain parts of the scriptures see themselves as outsiders, as aliens, as sojourners. Um, how does that, and linking back to other Chris's question, as do we situate ourselves on the outside of culture or embedded in culture, how does how do those things percolate into our understanding? Because even in the way that Christians often speak, the vernacular is often as outsiders. Um, how how do we how do we digest that in a way that even though the landing point of a lot of scripture is that transcultural vision of every tribe, tongue, and nation, um, but there are these these little sleepers embedded in in a lot of our thinking, sometimes unconsciously. How would you how would you suggest we think about that? Thank you, Steph. Um, I I guess Paul and Augustine are really really good at this and really helpful therefore as, as paradigms of how to negotiate because you're right there is a strange sort of how we are we inside culture should we think of ourselves in that way because surely we, we're formed by culture just as much as anyone else is you know we we're catechized as late moderns and to um deny that fact is to become blind to the ways in which our culture is shaping us which is really dangerous and yet as as christians perhaps there's a sense in which you never feel completely at home here um and so how do you navigate that i i think that the way that paul navigates it um is is, is he has a paradigm doesn't he of, of serving culture and i i guess he's being influenced by Jeremiah 29, the letter to the exiles and other passages, you know, and, and he says, I, I try to become all things to all people um, that, that, you know, by God's grace, I might win some. He's, he's seeking to enter into the, the desires and the passions and the fears of the, the cultures in which he's living. Um, you know, we see this in Acts 17, we see it in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, in order to appreciate how um, that the gospel can embody itself in this particular culture. Um, you know, what, what would the gospel look like from the point of view of, of a Greek mindset? What would it look like from the point of view, you know, in, in Ephesus and, and, and so forth? Um, and so I think the answer to the question is it's, it's neither simply inside nor simply outside. Um, but it's it's a way of living um, both of those, which I think the paradigm of exile in the New Testament, as, as you really helpfully mentioned, Steph, um, captures beautifully. Um, you know, an, an exile is not at his or her final resting place, doesn't feel completely home, um, but, but neither um, are they just, you know, in, to use that language uh, of of the spiritual, just to passing through. There, there's there's a sense of um, wanting to make a difference in the place where one is, and this is letter to the exile stuff again. Um, but not wanting to make this this one's final home. And 
I think Augustine is a beautiful model of this. I think he gets this. I wonder if in part he gets it by being an outsider and an insider to Rome biographically, you know, so he's he's not brought up at the heart of the Roman Empire. He's he's brought up in North Africa, which has its own particular flavor of Christianity at, at his time. He's he's sort of an outsider um, to the um, you know, the inner ring of, of power, as C.S. Lewis might put it, uh, in Rome. But it primarily comes from the fact that he is catechized biblically. And so he never looks upon Rome with the sense that this is where I belong. And yet he teaches rhetoric in Carthage and Rome. He appreciates Cicero really deeply. You know, you read passages in the city of God and he he can see why Cicero is such a great orator and he praises the wisdom that he finds in Cicero. And so he's an insider to the culture in the sense that, that he, he can appreciate it, he teaches it, he understands it, he can see why it sparkles to those for whom it is their home, and, and he can articulate that persuasively. And yet he's also an outsider because he's got this, and this goes back to, to Chris's question, he's got this standpoint from outside it, this, this biblical standpoint, the standpoint of creation, fall, redemption, from which he looks at Rome and sees, perhaps in a way that only an outsider can, all of its weirdness and its tensions and its contradictions. Um, that if if that is your culture, it's so hard to, to get enough distance from it to understand. And so if we want to think about how we stand in relation to culture, I think Paul and Augustine are great patterns for us, and they show that it's neither simply inside nor simply outside. And that's why it's awkward, isn't it? It doesn't feel comfortable to be a Christian in contemporary society because you are always navigating this um, dual adherence, if you like, you know, this exiled way of being in the world, which is hard. This is making me think a little bit about your conversation in the beginning of the book on worldview, um, which is obviously a big buzzword internal to a lot of Christian um, thinking, particularly in more of a contemporary era. And you talk about how there's been people who pushed against this concept of a worldview for pretty good reasons, I think. Um, and you instead put forward an approach that you just call worlds, like you losing the worldview. So I'm wondering if you can explain that, the subtlety that the differences between um, what the approach you're advancing with more of that apologetical conceptual framework um, way of approaching worldview. But then on the flip side of that, a major critique of worldview or um, meta narratives, right, comes from Leotard. Um, in pushing against meta narratives and and Adorno also in the Frankfurt School in their own way as well in these totalizing frameworks um, and I think for good reason as well. So I'm wondering if you can just explain like how do you think about scripture? Is is the biblical story of redemption is that a meta narrative in the sense of what Leotard and others are concerned about? Um, but then on the other hand, is it a, is your approach this kind of conceptual framework worldview like we typically talk about in Christian circles? I love the opportunity to get into the um, cogs and wheels of the book 
and sort of nerd out on a bit of methodology. So let's let's dive in. Um, the the idea of worlds I'm adapting from a French thinker called Paul Ricoeur and his idea of the world of the text and the world of the reader. Um, and it, it's for him, it's not, so the world of the reader is all the dispositions and assumptions and prejudices that we bring to anything we encounter in the world. Um, so it includes ideas, you know, worldview ideas. I think that the universe is, is such and such. Um, but it's it also works on an affective level. Um, it's the the things that I hope for and fear in the world, the, the things that I expect of a book or of a person and, and so forth that can't often be captured in um in terms of ideas. And what I what I noticed in Christian cultural critique is that there's sometimes a tendency to overemphasize the influence of ideas on forming us as if the, the only thing that makes us who we are are sets of propositionally articulable concepts. And so the only thing we need to become full disciples of Christ is to, to have new concepts. And then a pushback against that, which I, I think risks a tendency to overemphasize the non-conceptual, uh, which is that fundamentally we are um, creatures formed by, by habit and ideas play a, a secondary role um, and a subsidiary role to, to these more, more visceral, corporeal ways in which we're formed. And I, I think reading through the Bible, it, it's hard to resolve to either of those two positions because I think your ideas do have a salient importance in in the way in which the the bible sets things out but there's so much of the bible that works on so many levels that are not merely cognitive you know is, is it a third of the bible is poetry um and even those those parts of the bible that are more propositionally rich like the um the letters of paul for example he's always breaking out into praise um, and things like that. And, and so you can't you can't either privilege ideas and say they're the, the royal road to, to, to making us who we are, or you can't say, oh, ideas are just secondary and they come along, you know, when the real work has been done in, in habituation. Um, I think you've got to find a way of being able to um, let ideas and habits, but also artifacts and the, the, the disposition of, of the world around us and, and other things as well, um, each have a role and a complex role in shaping us. And this is what I'm trying to get to with the idea of figures. So the, the very general definition of a figure in the book is, is it's a way of patterning or rhythming reality. Um, and there, there are various reasons for using that language. But ideas do that. They, they create um, patterns and, and rhythms in reality in the sense that they, they make something stand out for you uh, against a background. They draw your attention to something. That's a pattern. Um, and they, they make sense of time. Ideas chop up time in certain ways. That's a rhythm. Um, but it's not only ideas that do that. You know, habits are also patterning and rhythming reality for us. The, 
the way in which you know lecture theatres in our universities are set out, the way offices are set out, the fact that we have chairs and we don't sit on the ground. They're all these artifacts are also patterning and rhythming reality. And they're, they're all catechizing us. They're all telling us this is how you should be in the world. You know, a lecture room is, is a, a prime example of that. Everybody apart from one person should sit down and be quiet. One person should stand up the front and speak. Uh, and there are various, you know, apparatus that enable that speaking. And, and that's a particular view of, of knowledge in the world and, and hierarchy and so forth. Um, and so all of these things are shaping us. And they're all forming our world. Um, and so our world is, includes ideas, but it's not just ideas. Uh, it's all of these different things. Um, and the, I think the advantage of using this language of worlds is that then you come to the Bible and the Bible has its own world. And again, Ricoeur sort of spells this out at great length in his writing. You know, what is the world of the text? Well, the, the text has its own assumptions and patterns and rhythms and you know, you'll know this every time you read a good novel you enter into its world don't you and there's a, a certain texture to reality there's a certain feeling that you have it, it, you, it's really hard to describe but it feels like a different world and you can lose yourself in the world and and I'm sure that you know as I say I don't know Pride and Prejudice, you, you, there's a feeling to that novel. It's not just a series of events recounted. It, that there's something that it feels like to be in that world. Um, and as the Bible acts upon us um, by the work of God's spirit, uh, it, it's initiating us, it's drawing us into a world. And, and Ricoeur has really helpful ways of talking about how the, the world of the reader and the world of the text relate to each other. He's not looking at it from a specifically Christian point of view, so, so he doesn't engage with the work of the, the spirit and so forth. And I think that's something that Christians need to add to, to his discussion. But there's the, the way in which I enter a world and my own world is reformed and reconfigured by an encounter with the Bible, I think is what I'm trying to, to get at with this language of, of figures and worlds. Your second, second part of your question was in relation to meta-narratives. Um, does the Bible have a meta-narrative? Well, I think there are two parts to an adequate answer to that question. The, the first is sort of yes, and the second is really no. <laughs> and so the, the sort of yes part is that the, the Bible sets forth this storied version of reality, creation, fall, redemption. Um, and the the Christian, as part of his or her catechesis, as part of his or her discipleship, it learns to, to, to see the whole of reality and to live through that story. So everything I encounter in the world is, is engaged with uh, in terms of this, this grid, if you like, of creation, fall, redemption. And, and there are so many different ways in which that works itself out and the way that I see myself as part of that story written into it, the way that I see my identity, my, my, my future, the possibilities of my existence, it's all shaped by this story. So in that sense, yes, there's a big story that makes sense of everything. But the idea of meta-narrative is more than that for Lyotard and others. And it's in this point that I think Christianity parts ways with the stories that, that Lyotard calls meta-narratives. Because part of a, what it means to be a meta-narrative is that it's a story 
that is detached from and stands above empirical reality. So one example would be Hegel, for example, and the way in which um, for him, the, the, the big story is that uh, spirit dialectically manifests itself in history. Um, and uh, Lyotard is, is clear that this stuff, so let, I need one more bit of the jigsaw before I get to what Lyotard is clear about, that these, these meta-narratives for Lyotard are important because they legitimate certain actions within history, um, often violent actions. They're stories of, of legitimation. They're also stories that stand above empirical reality. And that, that's this idea of, of meta. They're, they're beyond lived experience and make sense of lived experience. Now, Christianity doesn't really fit that mold. And, and the, the point at, at which Christianity breaks that mold is the incarnation. So up until that point, you can sort of make the argument um, that there might be a meta-narrative, that there's a story that stands beyond lived experience that makes sense of lived experience and legitimates certain actions within the world. But the incarnation just puts a, a bomb under that idea because the word became flesh. You know, so you want to you want to see what ultimate reality is, the logos. Um, as John says in the, the opening verses of his first letter, oh yeah, we've seen him. Uh, we've actually touched him. <laughs> it's like, what? No, no, no. We're talking about ultimate reality. We're talking about the logos. John said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was, I was chatting to him the other day. And, and that breaks all the, all the patterns. You can't, you can't do meta-narrative with that. You need a new set of categories to account for this, this scandal, you know, that John is saying, we've, we've touched him. We have touched the logos. Um, and so I, I think, and that's the sense in which, therefore, it's unhelpful, I think, to talk of Christianity as a meta-narrative because it, it, it denies the specificity of Christianity. Uh, it just, it makes it sound as if Christianity is just saying the same sort of thing as all these big stories about history, Hegelianism, Marxism, and so forth. Um, and so it, in the book, I... I try and introduce the language of meso-narrative. So it's a story that's in the middle of reality uh, to, to capture this idea of the word became flesh. It's still the word, it's still the logos. It's still ultimate reality, still the creator of the universe. So none of that universality has been lost. You know, it's not the word stopped being word and the flesh popped up in its place. No, no, no. <laughs> that's the scandal. Like that, that would not be that scandalous. That would be that would compute in, in modern terms. What doesn't compute in modern terms is the word itself, while remaining absolutely word, becoming flesh, sarks, meat, you know, same sort of flesh as, as you and I have got. Um, and you need, you need new language for that. A meso-narrative is one attempt to try and capture the uniqueness of that claim about ultimate reality. Chris, that's such a wonderful and helpful um, middle middle ground for us. I just wanted to pick up that thread of um, that you, you laid down earlier and parked about objectivity and, and neutrality, as as it seems like that's a good flow on um, from that idea of the meso narrative and the particularity of the incarnation. And it's not it's not separate. It's not um, aloof from empirical reality, but it's embedded in it. Could you unpack um, how you think 
um, critical biblical theory uh, equips us um, to engage with um, the concepts of objectivity and neutrality? Uh, I'll give it a go, Steph, uh, see what I can do. Um, I think objectivity is often a term that, that flies in under the radar for Christians, and, and we think it's a really good thing, and we think we know what we mean by it, but it, there's, a, there's a history to it um, that I think is, is problematic um, and that Christians sometimes don't appreciate. Um, it, it enters the tradition um, in the, the modern period uh, with thinkers like Descartes. Uh, and it's part of a dichotomy between the subjective and the objective. Um, so Descartes is trying to ground knowledge in an undeniable way. He's trying to reach certainty about what we know. And it, he's doing so because he wants to refute the skeptics. Um, and his way of doing that is making this really quite new division in the history of thought between an inner world of which I can be absolutely and apodictically certain, and an outer world of which I, I, I have a radical doubt. So in the discourse on method, he's really quite aggressive in the way he doubts things. Anything that it's slightly possible to doubt, he determines to doubt. Um, so my senses are playing, could be playing tricks on me, for example. There, there have been moments where people's senses have played tricks on them, so I can't be sure that my senses aren't playing tricks on me right now. I'm going to discount everything that comes from my senses. Unreliable. Can't trust it. Um, and what he's left with when, when he, he prunes away everything that it's even possible in the slightest way to doubt, for him, is his own thinking, which he thinks it's impossible to doubt. And this is the famous, I'm thinking, therefore I exist. I think, therefore I am cognitive. Uh, and although other people have challenged this subsequently, he's saying, I can't doubt my own thinking because if I'm doubting it, I'm thinking. And therefore, in order to doubt, I've got to think. And, you know, so that's certain. And he thinks that that is absolutely bulletproof as a foundation for knowledge. You, you cannot, however hard you try, however suspicious you get, you cannot doubt that knowledge. Okay. And this then is the, the yardstick by which he wants to, to attain all knowledge. It's got to be undoubtable, however hard you try and however sophisticated you get, it's impossible to doubt. And that's objectivity. And it's this idea of certainty. And then he tries to build out with, with what he calls clear and distinct ideas from, from this starting point within the self. Um, to say we can have certain knowledge, and, and, and he does so in, in various ways that have been critiqued in different ways. Uh, and, and therefore, you've got, the, you've got this new dichotomy in thought between objective knowledge, which is undoubtable, and subjective knowledge, like, for example, the, the testimony of my senses, which is now radically doubted. Um, and that's the way that... that the modern world, by and large, has tended to pass out knowledge. Things are either subjective, which means they're they're devalued, um, they they are to be put under suspicion, or they're objective, which means they're certain, they're undoubtable. 
It's, it's a two-speed gearbox approach to knowledge uh, where the bar is set incredibly high for the objective and suspicion is cranked up to 11 for the subjective. The question, I guess, for Christians is, well, how does the Bible reconfigure those categories? Like, are they, do those categories fit nicely into the way that the Bible understands the way that the world is and, and knowledge? And I, I don't think they do. Um, you know, which is not surprising because the, the Bible doesn't fit snugly and completely into any cultural um, sort of moment. So this is not something that's unique to modernity. This is not modernity bashing. This is just saying that the Bible exceeds every cultural way of understanding knowledge, including the modern way of understanding it in terms of subject knowledge. So what does the Bible do? Well, the idea of objective knowledge is Ideally, a knowledge from which everything that is human is subtracted. It, it's this idea of a view from nowhere. You know, if I can get myself out of the picture with all my prejudices and, and misunderstandings and illusions, what would a perfect knowledge be? And it's this idea of, of the acultural that we were talking about earlier in the, um, in the conversation again. So that, that's the paradigm of knowledge. Um, but that's, that's not the way that the, the Bible sets reality up, um, because the ideal for the Bible is not an impersonal um, view from nowhere. Um, but what you start with is, is God. Um, and God has a, a view on reality. It happens to be the, the authoritative view on reality because he made it. And it was so when he said it in Genesis 1. And it was good um, because he made it good. But it's it's still a view from somewhere. You know, God has a, um, a perspective on reality, and it happens to be reality itself because he made it, but it's, it's still perspective. And so you start with, with God, and, and therefore this dichotomy of the subjective and the objective doesn't really work with the Bible unless you pretend that there's a reality that exceeds even God that is impersonal. And I think that's precisely what the Bible doesn't allow you. And, and it's a biblical distinctive. Like to say that, that there is an impersonal reality to which even God must bow that is objective is to shoehorn the Bible into this modern way of looking at the world and therefore to make it snugly fit in one particular culture and therefore to alienate the Bible in respect to all the other cultures that don't think in this subjective, subjective, objective way. It's quite an, I don't know, imperialistic way to, to, to think about the Bible. Um, and so there isn't a view from nowhere in the Bible. Uh, there's, there's a God's eye view, which is the, the authoritative view, um, because he made everything and upholds it, upholds it moment by moment by the word of his power, as, as, as Hebrews 1 says. Um, and and pronounces things as good, which also, little footnote for philosophers, this also cuts across the Euthyphro dilemma. You know, if you know what that is, then you'll know why it does that. Um, and, and therefore, I guess it's just one of these examples, isn't it, where there, is, there are these categories that have been given to us by modernity that as Christians, I think it's worth just taking a step back from and thinking how helpful are they and getting a biblical handle on things. 
Um, and actually, I think the more we think about the subjective and objective as a dichotomy in which we're encouraged to think, the more you think, well, this is actually really quite different to the way the Bible puts things. That There's no sense in the Bible in which everything that comes to my senses must be radically doubted. Um, and yet there is a, a foundation of knowledge that it is impossible to doubt however hard I try. That's just not a biblical way of thinking. And I think we've got to let the Bible, so to speak, set its own table, you know, decide, let, let the Bible show us how to configure epistemology. And then you can bring that into conversation with your subjects and objects. You've absolutely, but you've got to let the Bible set things out in its own way first in order to understand how it sits askance to these categories like subjective and object. Dr. Watkin, thank you so much for uh, your time and just your profound thoughtfulness and engaging in our questions. Close, closing this time, uh, you, you mentioned the biblical narrative as being more of a, a meso-narrative. And I, I guess one uh, one element to kind of close out the time is how, how do you, uh, how would you compel us to live in kind of that meso-narrative as we are uh, in a society with competing narratives that either critique the biblical narrative or just totally dismiss it altogether. How, how do we as thoughtful Christians, um, one, live in this meso-narrative and then uh, be able to clearly articulate it to those who wrestle with the common themes of a critical theorist in relationship to uh, to the biblical narrative as a whole? Thank you so much, Daniel. I. That, that is a very Marcellinus type question. So, so Marcellinus writes this letter to Augustine, says, look, can you, get, can you give me a bit of, bit of help here, sort of working out what's going on with Rome? And uh, Augustine says, yeah, sure. How about this 1,000 page book? <laughs> that might begin to answer your question. And I, I, I think it's, it's one of, it's, so how to live in late modernity in the biblical story. I, I think it, it is a city of God type question like that it's really hard to condense that down because living that rhythm of creation, fall, redemption, and, and engaging with the world through that complex set of lenses is something that, that shoots out tendrils in all sorts of directions and, and is such a rich and complex and nuanced and supple way of inhabiting the world that it's, it's so hard to condense it down. Um, I, I guess just to hit perhaps a, a couple of notes on on the two little pieces of a big jigsaw puzzle that, that would be an adequate response to, to the brilliant question that you ask would be um, to, to understand reality in terms of um, what in the book I call the, the asymmetry of good and evil. So everything was created good. Everything is is distorted but they're not two equal and opposite principles in the bible genesis one comes before genesis three and so for example it's not that there is absolutely nothing left at all of the image of god after genesis three uh, nor did god say let us create sinners there's a priority of creation both uh temporarily and in terms of god's intention over over sin and, and that gives you a a, a, sh a shape for looking at reality um, that um, I think is 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 quite unique and quite complex in the way that you engage with culture. Um, and you know, I spend a, a whole chapter in the book trying to cash out how how that is the case. And I think one other little bit of the jigsaw uh, is living 
in the light of what is coming. This is a consummation bit of the creation fall redemption consummation. Um, you know, as, as Don Carson would put it, living with eternity's values in view and the way that that shapes and inflects a way of inhabiting the present um, that is both hopeful and realistic. Um, it's, it's hopeful because that the Christian has a really quite outrageously stupid hope. Like in, in the canons of what it is legitimate to hope for in the world, like the Christian is off the scale. Every single act of injustice that's ever been committed, even in private, will be brought to account. Like, excuse me? That's just ridiculous. God will wipe every tear from his people's eyes. There will be no more mourning, crying or pain. Like that is, that is hope the extent of which you, 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 we can't even get our head around. Like there is no hope more hopey than that. You know, this is not just, we want justice in society now and we think there are ways of getting it partially. This is, you know, hope with a, a capital H in flashing lights. So, so there's, there's that utter radical, ridiculous optimism for the Christian. But there's also a, a very deep and, I think the more deeply you get into it, quite a quite a dark reality, which is that the problems in the world are not just the result of structures that are hampering us. That they are in part, but but not exhaustively. And they're not just the fault of particular groups in society that are making life miserable for everybody else. But they they are in part, but that's not the fullness of it. It's much worse than that, actually, uh, because the the bleak reality of it uh, is that your heart and mine um, are sinful, um, and we can't get rid of that. Education won't get rid of that. Uh, training, meditation, cultural formation, you name it, we can't get rid of that. Um, and nobody is free from that. Um, and that's a much darker view of of what's wrong with the world, I think, than than where any other social theory is is willing to go. And if that was the only thing that Christianity was saying, it would be a dark, dark view of the world. And I think sometimes we don't quite grasp how dark it is because of, of the hope. But I think if you just dwell on the idea of, of universal human sinfulness, um, it is it leads you to be more sober about what is possible in the world than even the the, the the darkest pessimist. And yet the outrageous riotous hope leads you to be more optimistic than, than the most wild-eyed dreamer. And so being a Christian living in the present is learning to, to conjure with both of those and not to let either one of them blunt the other. And that gives you a certain orientation to, to yourself, um, to culture, uh, to the world. Um, that I think is quite distinctively Christian because you get views of the world that have one or the other of those that are incredibly bleak, even cynical about humans. You see lots of that on, on Twitter. It's not hard to find that. And you also get views of the world that are really quite wildly optimistic and, and think that we can sort of bring paradise on earth if we make the right moves and change the right things and get rid of the, <laughs> often get rid of the right people, um, which has not gone well in the past when people have tried to do that. Uh, and yet the ability to hold both of those 
as G.K. Chesterton would say, at the top of their energy. In other words, both of them fully, without sort of having some wishy-washy meeting in the middle way, I think is a distinctively Christian way of, 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 of orienting ourselves in reality. And it's just part of this jigsaw. So there's there's this eschatological realistic hope, and there's the, the asymmetry of good and evil. They're, they're two partial answers to your exceedingly rich question. And, you know, we could go on and on and on and add other bits of the Bible one after another that build up this picture of how Christians distinctively live in the world today. Yeah, there's so much to talk about here, and we're so grateful for your time, Dr. Watkin. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope all of our listeners will check out your new book, Biblical Critical Theory. So thanks so much. I've, I've had such fun. I could go on forever. Thank you so much, guys. Wonderful question. 